everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today, it is all about me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 175 and an exciting interview with Dr. Evelyn Azultani. Dr. Evelyn Azultani, I love your book so much. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Jeannie. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, this your book is called Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion. And uh, before anybody says, oh, this is nonfiction, wow, is there so much useful research and, and writing in this book of yours. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. Yes, a lot of research. It is an academic book but I wrote it in a way to be accessible to a broader public. I feel like you did. And much in the way that I have in the test talked about how people love to have their reference books when they're a writer, for instance, I'm gonna, if you're gonna write about guns, know about guns, write about it. If you wanna write about dead bodies, you know, that you find, it's really helpful to go look at something in forensic investigation about, you know, Ah, they were found in a garage. Well, what color should their lips be? Are you describing it right? These are important. They are. Your book has a really important thing of how it relates to writing and ideas and getting it all right. I mean, and it starts off with one of the first things you settle. So for those that are going to read it and you need to, there is something important to talk about being Muslim as distinct of nationality and as a cultural rather than religious backgrounds. And the whole first chapter is debating that and it's important and it's great. Thank you so much. Yes, I start laying out the basics because I'm writing about Muslim inclusion, but historically Arab and Muslim identities have been conflated and co-produced. So I try to start at the beginning by pointing out that conflation and also clarifying that there are almost 2 billion Muslims in the world and that maybe 15% of them are Arab. And I think there are around 400 million Arabs in the world and perhaps 80 or 85% of them are Muslim. So many Arabs are Muslim, but it's a cultural identity. It refers to people who trace their heritage to 22 countries in North Africa and West Asia or the Middle East. And then Islam refers to a religion and you can be of any background if you are uh, Muslim. And if you're Arab, you could be Christian, Jewish, secular, atheist, uh, Buddhist, Muslim there. You could be of any faith. Exactly. That reminder is so important. I mean, my favorite restaurant locally is Ma's Chinese restaurant and they do halal Chinese. And oh my God, they're so good. <laughs> exactly. And when we, when we think about Muslims, we don't think about people from China or Indonesia. And Indonesia is the most populous Muslim country. Well, exactly. And I think that's a neat thing for writers out there that might be interested to say, all right, I want a Muslim character. They can be from anywhere or anywhere in the world can be Muslim. We have, I have a friend of mine who is out there, if you're listening, Kevin, I'm using you as an example. He's the biggest white boy you ever saw, you know, big blue eyes, pale skin. He's Muslim, married a lovely, lovely woman that he met over in, I think it was Abu Dhabi. And Ashwin is is delightful. (laughs) Exactly. People of all backgrounds can be Muslim. It can. And so I loved that you kind of talked about a little bit of the difference between practicing Muslim versus cultural Mus- culturally Muslim, because similarly, I have friends that are say, well, I'm a bacon Jew. I really don't keep. <laughs> yes. 
I love bacon and cheeseburgers and I am Jewish. And that is an important memory, an important thing. It's not all uniquely Muslim, right? Tell us about those. Yes. So with these almost 2 billion Muslims of the world, some are observant, some are not observant. Actually, um, the comedian Rami Youssef, who wrote the TV show Rami on Hulu, in one of his stand-up routines, he has a joke that he says Muslims approach Islam as a la carte. And by a la carte, he's using Allah, the word for God, (laughs) that Muslims pick and choose whatever is convenient for them. I find it very funny. So one Muslim might say, I, of course, I'm never going to eat pork, but I'll drink a glass of wine. And other Muslims, absolutely not. So there's, like with any other faith, there is a wide range of how people observe, how people relate to the religion. And there, there tends to be a stereotype about Muslims being the most religious people and very, very strict. And you can't reason with them. And they're really fanatics. I've um, got a Pentecostal yes. brother-in-law that would fit beautifully into that. <laughs> In that description. <laughs> there we go. Exactly so. I mean, I I had some of my best times getting lost in the back alleys of his temple and finding these little old guys that they didn't speak English and I didn't speak Turkish, but we played backgammon for hours. The minute that I beat one of them, suddenly there was a crowd around us. I'm like, a white girl that plays backgammon. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great image. And it was fantastic. I mean, it, I felt safer in walking around in Istanbul than I would in many parts of Detroit. Yes. And uh, certainly in Baton Rouge, the murder capital of North America. Yes, I, I have visited Doha, Qatar twice, and I have never felt safer as a woman traveling by myself as I felt when I was there. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> when people are talking about that, just keep in mind, I want you to all think of using different characters and it's important but learn things it's important to learn it and get it right and if you wanted to write a muslim character that maybe wasn't a practicing muslim i think it's useful to say it out loud i mean and as i describe my characters somewhere in there drawing out for instance if you were drawing genie who was from muslim extent but really really does love bacon cheeseburgers you might pause up front and say "Eh, she used to but she doesn't (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. In in writing Muslim characters, a lot of people have this idea that it has to be someone who's very religious or fits certain kinds of stereotypes. But the person can be the character you already have in mind who isn't Muslim, who just happens to be Muslim and is a complicated human being like anyone else. I actually um, find it a disservice sometimes when you have, uh, let's, I'm going to take Riz Ahmed, who is a wonderful British actor, he won an Academy Award for his role in a movie called Sound of Metal, where he plays a musician who loses his hearing. It's a beautiful movie. He oh. does an amazing job. Uh, and in the, he's a Pakistani Muslim actor. And in the movie, his name is Ruben. And when I'm watching the film, since I am starved of representations of Muslims, there aren't that many. Most of them are in the context of terrorism. So it was a delight to see him in this role. But I really wish that he had a Pakistani Muslim name and not not change anything else about the movie. But sometimes people think that a colorblind casting is the future. And I want to see that character as a Muslim with no other changes. You don't have to add anything. You don't have to make him pray. You don't need to make him prove that he's Muslim in one way or another, but simply by his name for me, it would have 
made a huge difference. You did not actually reference a movie that I was hoping you would reference in that in that first chapter in your book where you're chat talking about the different TV and television. Let's talk Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying that the lead singer of Queen, for all of you not aware out there, Freddie Mercury, who changes many times, was Pakistani. That's right. And the movie actually looks at, you know, inside you meet his family. That's right. And, you know, that he rebelled against his family because, oh, he's a little bit different and he wants to be a singer and he's got all this talent of being a performer and they love his piano, but he doesn't really want to be a concert pianist. He wants to... And it is a boy rebelling against his family going in his own direction. And the fact that his family is Muslim and that he's Pakistani is there, but it doesn't, it, it's not that it's a big deal. It's just a fact of life. And it's beautiful that they, they gave you that. I agree. It's just part of his background, part of his heritage. It informs who he is as a, as a person, but it's not his entire identity. And um, the other delight of that particular movie is that it was played by Rami Malek, um, who is Arab American. And there's a lot of debate within the community around ethnically matching characters. So some people would have preferred a Pakistani to play that role. But uh, there's a very long history in Hollywood of whitewashing characters. And there so- is. In this case, yes. Uh, The examples that come to my mind include um, Jake Gyllenhaal played the Prince of Persia and um, Christian Bale played in Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is about ancient Egypt. And then oh, Scarlett the last Johansson. samurai. The, the last, last samurai, yes. <laughs> it was like, I want you to know that I fell in love with, uh, Watanabe was his name in that one? <laughs> yes. Ken Watanabe. I mean, I've, I went back and started watching him and everything because I loved him so hard after that movie. And it's like, yeah, yeah, Tom Cruise. Let's talk Ken Watanabe. <laughs> yes. But it was wonderful to see Rami Malek play Freddie Mercury, especially since Rami Malek really uh, made a splash when he was playing Mr. Robot. And in that role, he was he was uh, playing a nondescript colorblind character that didn't have uh, an Arab background. Yeah. But I liked that in a lot of ways it was still... I think people need to see each other on the screen, like the whole, the Little Mermaid coming out. I'm very excited for that. Just, we all have to see ourselves. We've, for those of us that are, well, I'm just going to say of a certain age, I grew up reading science fiction and fantasy in the 70s and 80s. And frankly, it was the same as the turn of the century adventure books that were all about boys. I think Joe Clayton was the first time that gave me skein of a female adventurer in a space opera that goes and does what she wants. And I was blown away. I mean, that's a girl. And Kate Elliott had a Geron series about a girl. And so I can only say that for kids nowadays watching Ms. Marble out there and saying, hey, here is a Muslim character who is a Muslim character who was written as a Muslim character played by a Muslim character appropriately in a movie. That's right. It's yes, we are at a remarkable moment right now. And I often wonder, wow, what would it be like to grow up now? Because similar to you, when I grew up, there were not, I can't think of one positive representation of an Arab or Muslim when I was growing up. Oh, I, except Freddie yeah. Mercury. True. That is true. <laughs> but like, on, like in the movies and like on television, in terms, you know, the, the TV shows I was watching or the films, like I watched uh, Back to the Future. I love Back to the Future. And there's a Libyan terrorist 
or watching Indiana Jones and there's some uh, Arabs who need to be killed. And that was the trend in most of the movies in the 1980s uh, when I was growing up. So right now we are in a really interesting moment. Disney is remaking all of their classics and diversifying them. And as you mentioned, Ms. Marvel um, is a Pakistani Muslim teenage superhero. You know, never had anything like that before. Yeah. Rami that I already mentioned. Um, there is a TV show called Sort Of out of Canada. I think it's on HBO Max. Yeah. And it's about a transgender Pakistani Muslim trying to make their way in the world. Um, we are Lady Parts out of the UK. It's about five Muslim women. Love who, the punk rockers. Yes. Love them. <laughs> I do too. It's my favorite. There was part and of it. I, I was going to go back a couple when you were talking about the white players. There was one that I found out a little bit of the the ancient in Doctor Strange. And it was played by Tilda Swinton, an Irish woman. I'm like, wait, that was Tibetan. And I had to dig all the way in. And I may have a friend or two at Disney. Do not tell anybody. But it was like, because China said, yes, we do not want Tibet represented in this movie. And they are a million dollar mark, a billion dollar market. I'm like, okay. So it just makes you aware that the industry has interesting constraints that are sometimes around how it gets made and who funds it. Yes, very true. And we, yes, most of us are not aware that uh, China actually plays a role in uh, Hollywood. Uh, yeah, a journalist actually contacted me about a year ago to ask me to speak on this topic, which is not my area, but I, I learned a lot just by hearing what he was writing about. It is really fascinating. Well, there's a whole, I, you, you talk in your book about Orientalism, and I wanted to talk about that term, as many do not realize that actually also applies to Muslims. And yes. So let me, let me define it, because I kind of wrote this down, of they thinking the West is more advanced, and, you know, and everything that is East is, is superstitious and different and magical thinking. But I wanted to point out as a student of history that Korea had repeating crossbows when the English were still working about the intricacy of the longbow. Ooh, yes. So I challenge all of that and say that I find that when, for me, it's more of the where, where did societies become strongly patriarchal and repressive oligarchies that is where you have less advancement in industrialization rather than one religion versus another. Yeah. So, yeah, with Orientalism, it's a term um, that the late scholar Edward Said popularized in academia in 1978. I don't think it's really uh, made its way outside of academia, but it was a term he used to define, basically it's like putting on a pair of glasses that distorts our understanding and perception of the Middle East. It does apply to East Asia as well, but a lot of his work is looking at the Middle East and this idea of the Middle East as exotic, barbaric, backwards. We need to go in and rescue them because it's chaotic and they can't rule themselves. And he talks about this as uh, related to colonialism and emerging as a justification for colonialism. And I start the book, I, I mentioned that term because a lot of the book looks at Islamophobia and I'm trying to understand the relationship between the two. And when I think about my own childhood and I'm Arab and Muslim and Latina and I grew up in New York, I didn't have any language when I was growing up to talk about the kind of experience of marginalization that I felt as an Arab Muslim. 
And when I learned the term Orientalism, I was probably 25. Uh, it was a term that people who in college who were exposed to this term would use to describe their experience of marginalization. And then later on, around 2010, we started using the term Islamophobia instead. Yeah, yeah whereas students of history, and this is, you know, I want to plug anybody that needs to read really good history books like, oh gosh, <laughs> there's so many good ones out there. But there's fiction writers that are PhDs in histories that write it better. Like you can read about Ibn al-Nafis, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced his name, but luckily he's dead, like 13th century, that corrected Galen's circulation of blood mm-hmm. and wrote about it and how it works. And he was an Arab physician. And so the idea that this is all, all of the progression is Western and all of everything is masked in superstition, that is just a way that people have had historically of othering and belittling so that your manifest destiny can be represented. Yes, right on points. <laughs> yes, we are other people to be able to dominate them. Exactly. That they're lesser than us and Orientalism has been one lens that has been used particularly for Middle East and East Asia. And it includes Muslims because of the large population of Muslims in that area. Exactly. I mean, we can bring up and talk about um, in horror writing, I was I was contemplating this in terms of, you know, the post-colonialism world and how, you know, what England did to Egypt. But that whole idea of, ah, the mummy, the magic, the I don't understand what this works but it's not Western and Christian, therefore it must be magic and have horrible monsters. And how much of the whole horror genre has brought up by othering something else, othering, you know, we don't understand that religion, we don't understand voodoo, and we don't understand, you know, the African faiths or the the funerary rites in the middle, in parts of the Middle East, and not even everywhere in the Middle East, right? Yes. (laughs) Actually, I'm I'm teaching a course right now about the Middle East in Hollywood, where we watch one movie per decade from the 1920s to the present. And our 1930s movie is the first mummy movie. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) With uh, Boris Karloff. And uh, we analyze the binary oppositions and the Orientalism. And there is a very clear narrative about the West representing science and rationality and the East representing superstition and sitting on these um, valuable artifacts and the West needs to come in to find them and give them value. And we see this mummy movie. I mean, mummies are fascinating, uh, but we see this kind of narrative in this mummy movie being remade over and over and over again. We do. And and I love... I love zombie movies and I love zombie conceptually a long ways, but I, but I at least to recognize where it comes from. Yes. <laughs> totally. Now, I want to dig into something that I found particularly fun because for years I have been talking to any coworker that sits still and this is why that I'm dangerous in cube farms because sooner or later they hear about the Bechtel test. Yes. And there's people that don't know the Bechtel test, which is, are there two women like you and me talking to each other, not about men? And you would think that would be a low bar. <laughs> it is a low bar, but it it's a low volumes. bar. Yet somehow there are volumes and volumes of movies that are unable to pass it. So you you had a, there's, you mentioned like there's the DuVernay test that does Rachel diversity. Tell us about the, and, and I don't want to mispronounce the other person's name. So Obeidi? Yes. 
Obeidi al-Sultani test. That's Tell right. everybody about it and what it means. So the Obeidi al-Sultani test is a test uh, to help Hollywood improve representations of Muslims. And <laughs> I co-created it with Sue Obeidi. And I want to pause here and say, not just Hollywood, this is for anybody who writes any story anywhere. Go on. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Thank you, Jeannie. So I co-authored it with Sue Obeidi, who's the director of the Hollywood Bureau at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. We were having some conversations um, a few years ago, noting the number of wonderful changes that were taking place in representations of Muslims, particularly in Hollywood. We were saying, hey, you know, did you see that show the other day, Lone Star 911? There's a Muslim woman. She's a firefighter. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. But there was that one scene where she didn't pray properly. She didn't, she, you know, it's not an, a Muslim actor. She didn't know what she was doing. Twitter went nuts over it. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> gatekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, did you see that there was that scene where she's on the job and her hijab falls off and her hair is blowing in the wind and it's basically to titillate. Uh, male viewers to be able to, eh, is she covered? Is she not covered? Oh, yeah, it's too bad. But wow, she's really a great character. And we noticed that there were a lot of really amazing efforts that were falling short for one reason or another. Yeah. And so we created this test to enter in that conversation to basically say, we see you're trying and here are a few things that we've noticed that we could help you do a little bit better. I should mention that there was a Riz test named after the actor Riz Ahmed, um, created by two people in the UK. And that test points out all the terrorists and the oppressed veiled women. And it highlights all of the common stereotypes um, that we have inherited. And this test uh, is not working with the main stereotypes. But for example, um, one of the, we have five criterion, and, and one of them is that the Muslim character uh, should reflect the diversity of Islam. So right. it doesn't have to be an Arab. It could be there. We are seeing more black Muslim representations today. We're seeing more queer Muslim representations. Uh, we don't really see a lot of Chinese Muslims or Indonesian Muslims. So to encourage writers to explore the diversity of the community. And then we have other other criteria to um, also support that process that if you are committed to diversifying representations, this will help you. I, I like to step four that you had that you said the character is essential to the story arc and has a rich and clearly defined backstory. And that immediately threw me to the 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 movie that they came up of. Here's all the bad guys launching and like you could tell who was going to die because I didn't know their backstory. Yes. Everybody that had the first clear backstory, and this was Suicide Squad. If you didn't get their full backstory, like, oh, they're not going to make it to the end. I can tell. Yes. We've been noticing that a common and easy and shallow way to diversify is to throw in any underrepresented group in the background. So right. it, whether they live or die, it's irrelevant to the storyline. And we're not saying that every story needs to have a Muslim lead or co-lead, but just to keep in mind that when diversifying representations to try to do more than just sticking someone in the background. And I like that you're talking about in the culture and faith to remember that the culture of an Indonesian Muslim might not be the same as an Egyptian Muslim or American Muslim. Right. So one yeah. of, yes, one of the criterion is that the Muslim character doesn't have to be defined by their religion. Religion can be part of the story. It doesn't have to be their entire story. 
and that Muslims have different cultures and practice differently. And uh, it's, there seems to be a tendency when portraying Muslim characters, even when trying to diversify, that they're very, very religious and uh, that religion dominates their entire life. And sure, for some Muslims, that might be the case. But for most Muslims, religion is part of your, just like for any other person who... Well. Exactly. And I want to throw something about somebody's like the difference between Catholic and Protestantism. But yeah. I got to tell you a funny story. I have a book I've written, and my character became a vicar in Church of England. And I wrote kind of an opening story of a service. And Judith Tarr, Judy Tarr, did me the great pleasure of doing her edits on me. And one of the edits she's like is, this represents this Presbyterian rather than Church of England. And I went off and started howling with laughter because... <laughs> It will not surprise you. I was raised Presbyterian, so that's, I wrote what I know. <laughs> right. I literally had to go out and buy a, a C of E book to say, oh, I see how I got that wrong. So wow. I must recommend the importance of, of, I don't know if there's fundamental service differences between Shiite and Sunnite, but for the love of whatever you want to do, of not having somebody laugh at you, maybe do a little research there, people. Yes. A little, I mean, that is interesting. You grew up in it, and so you're writing what you know, and then someone points out some kind of uh, error. But well, yes. exactly. I mean, the first time I went to an Irish session music, my my band member and I had both grown up in ensemble and the formal playing practice. And about halfway through the evening, I, I looked at him, and our fiddle player came from the session tradition. I'm like, I feel like we're two Catholics who are somehow got brought into a Baptist praise ceremony because we don't know when to stand up and kneel down or what. <laughs> yeah, so like, we don't know how to do this thing We're desperately here. out of step here. <laughs> yes. And, yes. and so as a reader, I, I, I love that I saw on your website that you are working with Hollywood as the, sen I'm going to call it sensitivity reading because we call that, that's a, something we use a lot saying, did I do this accurately? Is this correct? Am I, is there anything that I should or shouldn't say or do or not do based on this. And I love that you're out there doing that for Hollywood. Yes. Um, my colleague Sue Obedi and I, we did notice an, a significant uptick after 2015 in terms of our uh, feedback being uh, solicited, which does coincide with uh, Donald Trump's Muslim ban. And yes. we were, you know, we've been wondering why, why here, why now? But it seems that, um, his proposal for the Muslim ban, which he first articulated in 2015, it didn't go into effect until he uh, became president. It did inspire uh, Hollywood to try to expand representations of Muslims, to try to challenge stereotypes. It was a, a very galvanizing moment. And so I did get more calls after that moment. Uh, Hollywood wanted to get more consultants on board. And um, it's been a very interesting, illuminating experience. And it's, it's something I enjoy doing because I do this research. So it's, it's nice to have the opportunity to um, have the research, make it available. Plus the uh, writing is fun, you know? It is. I, I wanted to throw out one more idea in there on that general topic. When people have sensitivity readers and getting the sensitivity readers, there's people that have been pushed back, to, like in the science fiction fantasy, we had the sad puppies, people that are like, why are we seeing all this? Bruh, bruh, bruh. And I'm like, you know, as a writer, I go out there, I have a duotrope uh, 
subscription and I'm looking at what people are asking for, what people are paying for. And I'm going to conflate, help me out here, so sorry to do it, Budweiser and their rainbow beer cans. Mm -hmm. Does anybody think Budweiser is somehow, you know, a, a more open and inclusive organization than they ever were before? Do they have women and people of color on their board of directors? No. Right. What they discovered is that money is good. And, and much in the way that you talked a little bit about the, even if it uses the wrong reasons, even if it uses neoliberalism saying that, hey, the market will bear this, we want to sell it in more places, I will take that as a reason if it gets us more and better representation. Yeah, I know we, I, I hear this argument and um, part of me wants to argue something else, but ultimately we'll take the progress where it is. So what I what I want is for people to be committed to diversifying representations because there is a history that has actively marginalized so many groups. Muslims exactly. are just one of many groups. So it's the right thing to do. My arms are spread wide. Hallelujah. Yeah. I am yeah. so with <laughs> And I want you right now to teach me the equivalent of a word of hallelujah that works. <laughs> I don't know if I have one, but yes, yeah. hallelujah. <laughs> because but, is one of those of the for the right reasons or for the wrong reasons. Yeah. If there is a queer Muslim out there yes. that bursts into tears of joy at seeing themselves exactly. or reading about themselves, that matters. It does matter. And in Hollywood, yes, it is about money. That is the bottom line. It but is. There has been a change. Crazy Rich Asians, Black Panther showed Hollywood that you can make money with uh, non-white needs. And also all those uh, films we mentioned before with the whitewashing, they didn't do well. So, nope. and then we have arguments coming from people who study diversity saying it's good for business. It actually makes more money. It's good for teams working together. It makes you marketable. All of that is true. And that's great. And if that's what works for people, okay. But I want the, uh, the solution that is about inclusion because it's the right thing to do, not because of the money. But okay, I'm with you, Jeannie. Yeah. If well, the money does it, let the money I do have, it. I have a couple of friends who play hockey um, that are... It was okay in the LGBTQ cooperative. And besides, I'm, I'm looking forward to hockey having more women in the top levels because, wow, if you thought pride jerseys were a point of contention, let me tell you how about how probably a quarter of women's hockey is LGBTQ, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're suddenly going to have those representations in all of the sports, not just yes. the women's soccer team and the, you know, the. I love that the captain of the American national team and the captain of the Canadian national team got married. Oh, wow. And that's beautiful. That is wonderful. <laughs> so the seeing these and the representation in sports and in movies and in things and, and all of this and to talk about it openly, I think is what's important. And that's what I hope that people get out of your book in Broken is that they can read it and say, this is a reference. This can say where it was. If I want to put my, if I want to base my movie of saying this happened in the 70s, well, these people are, of all colors, shapes, sizes, and neurodiversity and religions were all there in the 70s too. And so this pr provides an opportunity and your book is really neat for saying, this is going on in this century, this is turn of the century, so that somebody could use it as that reference for writing of saying, I wanna write about this in this time, 
I wasn't alive in the 60s, but let's see how people represented Muslims in the 60s. And you have that, and that's really neat. So thank you for writing it. Thank you so much, Jeannie. I appreciate it. And I know I'm kind of running low on time, but I still want to talk about your tools. How did you, are you a Scrivener girl? Are you a thousand notepads? Or how do you sit down and write all this? Because this is so beautifully footnoted and cited and... Uh, it's a beautiful scholarly text. I would expect no less from a professor, but Evelyn, how do you do it? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, a lot of people ask me how long it took, and I'm curious how long it takes for you to write your fiction books, Jeannie, because you're a very prolific writer. Uh, it took me 10 years to write this. It's partly because I do have my day job teaching, and I find that writing takes time, letting it sit, getting back to it, revising it, all it of that. It takes time. Some of them come quickly. Some of them come not quickly. I am, I want to say there's a, like the Ellen Millions and the Sean and McGuire's of the world that somehow can produce multiple books in a year. Katie Murphy, I respect you ladies. You are amazing. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> same, same. I'm the kind of writer who I am very organized, but at a certain point, there are just too many documents and they're all over the place. I have tried Scrivener, and then I end up with just multiple documents everywhere, and then I start new documents and uh, a lot of revision. I feel like writing is revision. For me, writing is uh, figuring it out while I'm writing. So I often start writing about a topic because I don't understand it and I want to understand it. And sometimes when I'm working with graduate students, there's this idea that professors sit down and they, they're so smart that they write from start to finish. But... The whole time I'm grappling, I'm thinking, wow, there are um, a wide range of representations of Muslims after 2015 for the first time. Why? Why did that happen? How do I understand it? How do I analyze it? And through multiple revisions, I get to the point where I actually figure out how I want to understand what the entry point is. So I find writing very difficult, very challenging, and it's also something that I can't stop doing. Right. <laughs> these sometimes you can just say these ideas all go together. Like I, I mean, you, yours is a book. It's not the way a novel would go, but it still copes neatly through ideas. Like you start with. It, it's almost I want to say like any kind of a, a lawyer's agreement. You start by defining your terms, and whether or not I, I like them, I have to acknowledge them in that way. Yes. And. Part of this is we, we're going to meet up in person someday so that we can sit and argue about some of them because words matter so much. Yes. <laughs> and I hate the way, I, I'm sorry, this is a rant, but I really truly hate the way that there are entire groups that misuse terms and throw terms around because I'm going to use them to beat you with because they don't matter to you the way they do to me mm -hmm. or they don't matter to me the way they do to you. Mm -hmm. Like yes. when I, you know, I say the, liberal parties in charge of Australia. They are the conservative party. They used to be Tories. Calling them liberal does not make them liberal. Mm -hmm. Much like neoliberalism does not make somebody liberal. Right. Yes. <laughs> it makes them libertarian, perhaps. Perhaps. Yes. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. So yes, I have a lot of terms in there. You do, and but you define them early enough that it makes it consistent as it goes through the book. So I wanted to say acknowledge that that was a lot of work and it was really good and I enjoyed that. Thank you so much. The, the main thing I tell myself when I'm writing to be able to write is I'll fix it later. 
I literally the whole time, like, don't worry, you'll fix it later. You'll fix it later because, you know, I find the process so difficult. I tell my grad students that all the time when they feel uh, overwhelmed and intimidated by writing, just write it down. You'll fix it later. And then exactly. Under exactly. revision and you eventually get there. Well, I will put links to the fascinating things we've discussed during this episode on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Evelyn, Dr. Al-Sultani, this was magnificent. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Jeannie, for having me. I appreciate it. And I wanted to ask your advice on one tiny piece. If somebody said, I really want a Muslim understanding reader, is there are there any resources out there generally that they can submit to? Like, here's a website of, I want to be a beta reader. Do you know any people that uh, when are operating things like that for Muslim characters? So what I do know about is that there are, um, this is more Hollywood facing, but there are databases that exist. Uh, for example, the Pillars Fund is a Muslim philanthropic organization, and they created a database of Muslim talent, writers, cameramen, the whole gamut um, to make Hollywood aware, hey, if you need a Muslim, here we are. And uh, there are other similar kinds of databases like that for Arab screenwriters and also for Middle Eastern and North African um, talent. Beautiful. And I just want to make that aware for any writer that says, look, people's time costs money. But if you say, I want an hour of your time, go spend maybe 60 to 100 bucks and say, I'm going to get a pro to read this, to look at it, to say, did you get it right? And it is so worth your while to do that. I should mention that I do work with um, a small uh, boutique firm called History Studio, and we do uh, sensitivity reads. Ah, magnificent. Yes. Well, I will put the links on the website as part of these episode notes. Thank you again. I really appreciate that this was fun. Thanks, Jeannie. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Arb Street in Ukraine, an honorable mention to anywhere that you can really get good halal Chinese food because it's worth your time. Go look. And hey, thanks for listening.